This is a love story. As the boy enters the biology laboratory, he is accompanied by a pod of other juveniles. The girl's brain is buzzing with high levels of dopamine, the reward chemical. It's a neurotransmitter released by the hypothalamus, a small region approximately the size of an almond. She approaches the group. Want to be my lab partner? The boy appears surprised. He turns to the other juveniles who are performing ritualistic social hand gestures. The girl has been rejected. Mate selection is unsuccessful. If you're just tuning in, we're learning about the female brain by following along with one completely fictional woman from birth to death. We're calling her Kira. In our last episode, we watched Kira take her first baby steps, assert her personality, and navigate childhood, warts and all. Now she's experiencing her first crush. It might only seem like puppy love to all the adults around her, but these moments don't just change our lives. They change our brains. I said this was a love story, but it's actually several love stories between a young woman and her partner, a new mother and her baby, and perhaps most unexpectedly, between brains and hormones themselves. This is Playing with Marbles. I'm Katie Jensen. The last time we saw Kira, she was on the edge of becoming a teenager. She's 13 now, swimming in hormones that are signaling to her brain and body with instructions for developing into an adult. Puberty! When Kira sees her crush walk into the biology lab, her brain floods with dopamine. It's known as the happy neurotransmitter, but it also regulates motivation and promotes impulsivity. Because she's a teenager, she's extra sensitive to dopamine, which means that when she loves, she loves big. As Kira's crush approaches, her body begins turning dopamine into norepinephrine key player in our fight-or-flight response. Faced with immediate danger, it primes our muscles and heart, deepens our breathing, and converts glucose reserves into quick energy so that we can dash away from certain death. Even when we're not at risk, it helps keep the heart pumping. Normal levels of dopamine and norepinephrine are healthy for our prefrontal cortex, and that's what's responsible for executive function. The prefrontal cortex is a busy bee, regulating our thoughts, actions, and emotions. Here's Dr. Adam McCrimmon, who studies cognition in children. So executive functioning is an intellectual, or what we often call a cognitive ability or construct. It is typically mediated by the frontal lobes, and so the front part of the brain, kind of above your eyebrows. And it is a series of different skills that allow you to plan for and execute a goal. But when faced with a sudden onset of intense psychological stress, the amygdala activates the stress pathway in the hypothalamus and brainstem. And this triggers more norepinephrine and dopamine to be released, and it gets in the way of the prefrontal cortex's ability to regulate attention and working memory. It's the reason why, when she's talking to her crush, 
Kira is struggling to remember the name of the band they were talking about yesterday in class. It's also why she's oblivious to her classmates giggling and whispering behind her. If Kira's ill-fated attempt to flirt with her crush seems poorly planned, it's probably because it is. Her prefrontal cortex is very much still under construction, and it will be the last part of her brain to mature. As well as having a work-in-progress brain, her body is being flooded with hormones, especially sex hormones. Her ovaries are producing progesterone, estrogens, and even some testosterone. Hormones are how the body sends chemical messages from one place to another. Let's bring in a scientist who can tell us what's written in these messages and how they get around. They don't tend to like liquid. This is Dr. Lisa Galea. She's a professor in the Department of Psychology and a member of the Center for Brain Health at UBC. And so they need something called the carrier protein, which I tend to think of as a bus. It's like this little bus <laughs> comes along, picks up the steroid hormone, and then takes it to where it wants to go. So it's going to act where there are hormone receptors. So there's estrogen receptors, there's antigen receptors, and there are many of these in the brain. So these little carrier proteins will drive their hormone processors up to the brain and then deposit them there. Sex hormones are mostly made in the gonads. I know what you're thinking, and gonads is the technical term. Kira's gonads are her ovaries, so she has lower levels of testosterone and higher levels of estrogens than if she had testes. Estrogens, plural. Estrogens that are in our bodies are in three forms. There's the most famous form called 17-beta-estradiol, and that's pretty much what everybody means when they talk about estrogen in the singular. Dr. Jillian Einstein is another expert on sex hormones. There are two other forms of estrogens, endogenous forms. One is called estrone, and the other is called estriol. Now, estriol is actually only made when women are pregnant, and it's made by the placenta. Estrone is made by fat tissue, as well as oftentimes by the adrenal glands. And 17-beta-estradiol is principally made in the ovaries. Now, one of the things that's very surprising to everybody whenever I talk about estrogens is how they get made. 17-beta-estradiol is synthesized from testosterone. You cannot make any form of estrogen without going through an androgen first. Testosterone is a type of androgen, another group of sex hormones that all bodies make, but XY bodies produce more of. All of these androgens and estrogens are actually synthesized from cholesterol. And we all know about cholesterol, you know, foods that are high in cholesterol like butter and soft cheeses, um, sometimes cream. It's that cholesterol from which all of these hormones originate. And all of the hormones that originate from cholesterol are called steroid hormones because of their particular molecular configuration. Is this TMI? Kira's now 14, so with the help of these estrogens, she's about to experience a big milestone, her first period. The hypothalamus tells the pituitary gland to tell the ovaries to send estrogens to the uterus. All this so that the uterus is ready to receive the egg. We're going to mention the hypothalamus a few times. It's responsible for keeping the body in homeostasis, maintaining heart rate, sleep schedule, appetite, core body temperature, and so many other things. As estrogen levels climb, her hippocampus becomes more plastic. The hippocampus is that little seahorse-shaped structure that controls learning and memory. 
Right before ovulation, estrogen gives her hippocampus a jump start. And in females, at least female rodents, we know that 17-beta-estradiol will actually increase the connections between neurons. It increases synapses in parts of the brain that play a role in learning and memory, like the hippocampus. And I think this is a very powerful finding, actually, that was back in 1995 that Catherine Woolley first published this paper that showed not only does giving exogenous 17-beta-estradiol to rodents increase synaptic density in the hippocampus, but just looking at the synapses in the hippocampus over the four-day estrus cycle of a female rodent shows that when estrogens are high over those four days, synapses are high. And when estrogens are low, synapses are low. This is one of the reasons why when I teach this, I tell all my students, don't think of these as sex steroids. Think of these as growth hormones because they're really enhancing growth. Because this is a show about brains, we care about how menstruation impacts cognition, but we don't know the answer to that yet. We also don't know how different phases of the ovulatory cycle might change a woman's ability to perform various brain tasks. Like most people who get regular periods, Kira will spend 40% of her life either premenstrual or menstrual. So the novelty of having a period wears off pretty quickly. A year after her first period, Kira can start to tell where she is in her cycle, even without looking at the calendar. A few days before she starts to bleed, she'll start to feel her mood shift. She starts to crave sweets, when her usual favorite snack is a bag of chips. She gets intense cramps and feels tired in the afternoons at school. Premenstrual syndrome, or PMS, occurs in 20 to 40% of people who get periods. But for some people, symptoms can be debilitating. One in every three women quit daily activities because of their symptoms. Not all doctors are convinced that PMS is anything more than a social construct. Dr. Jillian Einstein again. This was a study that was started by a brilliant psychiatrist, Sarah Romans, who was at Women's College Hospital. And when she invited me along on this study, I had no doubt, and I still have no doubts, that 17-beta-estradiol affects individual neurons. So I went into the study believing that. And I still believe that. However, she went into the study viewing PMS as a social construct and started it in a very sensible way by doing a systematic review of the literature back from the mid-19th century to, I don't know, 2007 or something. What she found was that when she looked at the literature, there was no clustering of bad mood around the menstrual period. And she also showed that in the few studies in which the participants were blinded to the purpose of the study, that is, they didn't know it was about PMS, they didn't have any association with the menstrual cycle and their mood. Then we did another study in which she gave everybody smartphones and there was a questionnaire on the smartphone. And they answered the questionnaire every day at the same time for three full menstrual cycles. And the, most of the questions were about mood. And I think the brilliant thing that she did was, A, she hid the purpose of the study from the participants. 
B, she randomly recruited participants from the community rather than going into OBGYN clinics where people were complaining of menstrual problems. She asked about positive mood as well as negative mood. And basically, she found that negative mood was more strongly associated with social support and sense of one's own health than with any stage of the menstrual cycle. So would it be accurate to say that it could be the lack of accommodations that society makes to people who have menstrual symptoms that make them feel like they're losing their minds? (laughs) I, I got a lot of irate callers, a lot of interviewers. One interviewer said to me, you know, Dr. Einstein, what am I going to tell my wife? She loves her PMS. Sarah Romans's idea was that this is the one time of the month when women are given permission to be in a bad mood, to really let their feelings out. The gender constricts us and demands that we behave a certain way. So this is the one time of the month when that's allowed. There are always people who may actually have their bad mood associated with the menstrual cycle. It's just that they're not the average. In the case of those women, I would say, yes, allowances should definitely be made. But Sarah was going into this, and I think I was too, from a a feminist perspective, that women are not ruled by their hormones, and we shouldn't allow society to say we are. Whether or not PMS is a social construct, our Kira is struggling with her periods. Her cramps are getting worse. Sometimes they get so bad, she has to stay home from school with a hot water bottle cradled against her stomach. So when she's 16, Kira goes to the doctor and leaves her the prescription for the birth control pill. And for a few months, things go well. Her cramps become less intense and her skin clears up. But she notices other changes she wasn't expecting, too. Life seems to have gotten more dull, in a way that Kira can't describe. And her sleep patterns are changing. Being the bookish girl she is, our curious Kira looks into her symptoms and finds that birth control may be to blame. She discovers that hormonal birth control has a big impact on the brain. It can change the way we encode and store memories and even change the shape of the brain, like the amygdala and hippocampus. And hormonal birth control can put teens at a higher risk of suicidal behavior. Because of this, Kira decides that the pill just isn't for her. She thinks the risks outweigh the benefits, but maybe when she's ready to be sexually active, she can revisit this option or choose non-hormonal types of birth control instead. The pill can be the right option for some people, and for others, it's just not worth it. We aren't Kira's doctor, and this choice is up to her. Kira is knocking developmental milestones out of the park. She's past puberty and about to graduate high school. She keeps her hair short and messy and draws patterns in pen on her arm to help her focus. That stoic frown is still there when she's glaring down at a math problem that won't solve itself. This is the time period when she's most likely to be diagnosed with a mental health condition if she has one. Women are twice as likely to develop depression and show more severe symptoms. On the flip side, the presence of estrogen might contribute to the fact that women seem to respond better to treatment with SSRIs. Kira is studying all of this in school as she's decided to pursue neuroscience. She blazes through her master's degree, which isn't unusual because women in STEM have been observed to graduate faster than men. At 23, her brain is fully mature, two years earlier than if she was a young man. 
and she decides to pursue her MD-PhD. Kira's got a passion for learning that just won't quit, and that'll come in handy for boosting her cognitive reserve later on. Kira's trying not to burn the candle at both ends, but she finds herself pulling all-nighters just to get her thesis done. For women, working more than 55 hours a week long-term can lead to increased mortality and hospitalization. It might be because of persistent societal expectations for women to, quote, have it all. That all can include heart disease, cancer, arthritis, and diabetes. It can be tempting for Kira to curb her school stress with a quick smoke break between classes. But she knows that tobacco reduces estrogen levels and estrogen's ability to protect her body against things like osteoporosis, which has been linked to white matter change. And she's all about keeping her brain as sharp as a tack because there are bigger fish to fry. One day, her classmate submits a grant application with a proposal that includes a gender-inclusive sample population. It gets rejected with a note that says, All this sex stuff doesn't matter. Studying both genders is a waste of precious resources. But Kira and her bestie know the facts. Studies have shown that women in STEM are helping to close the gender research gap just by doing their thing. Female research authors are more likely to include sex and gender analysis in their work. And that's just better science. Despite Kira's poorly planned early attempts at romance, she's a lovable girl. When she's 25, one person catches her eye and really gets the serotonin and oxytocin flowing. She's not quite as sensitive to dopamine as when she was a teenager. She's doing most of her conscious thinking with her prefrontal cortex, the rational part responsible for judgment and awareness of long-term consequences. So Kira's able to keep cool on the first date. There's just enough dopamine coming from her hypothalamus to keep her interested, but she's not overloaded with noradrenaline, so she's not freezing up. It helps that she's really good at bowling, and he seems to be into girls who are good at bowling. Three years later, Kira and her partner get married. After celebrating the completion of her MD-PhD, she decides to have a baby, and a whole new wave of hormone activity starts to happen. Here's Dr. Lisa Galia again. You're talking about 10 months of being pregnant, mm -hmm. and all of these steroid hormones are quite high. The placenta thumps out a lot of hormones itself. The placenta is a temporary organ that Kira's body creates to connect to her baby. And estrogens, in particular, increase really dramatically during pregnancy. So cortisol levels, which is the main stress hormones, that's actually about twice as high during pregnancy as normal. Progesterone levels are about 20 times higher during pregnancy. But estradiol itself is 200 times normal levels. That's by week 20. By week 30, they're 300 times normal levels. And they climb even higher than that. And again, you know, you're not pregnant for a couple of days. It's, it's months and months and months of your body and brain sitting because, you know, the hormones love the brain. So they're going to go up there at swimming in these hormones. With all these hormones attracted to our estrogen-loving brains, is there any truth to the concept of baby brain? Does pregnancy impact cognition? 
So a lot of people will say, call it maternal amnesia, baby brain, you know, your brain stops working when you're pregnant. Now the, the reality is, no, it does not stop working when you're pregnant. I've done a lot of studies. I've worked with other people that have done a lot of studies. Yeah, I will say in the third trimester, you do see some declines in verbal memory, some declines in spatial memory, that kind of stuff, but they're pretty small. The other things you'll find, we did this huge study with Peter Graff and Carrie Cutler at UBC, and we did a number of memory tests with people that were pregnant. And the only one that they didn't do as well on was we asked them to, could you please post this letter later on? Here's a letter back to us with stamped and everything. Just post it in a week. That's called perspective memory. So remembering to do something later on. And, you know, that was the worst. <laughs> people that were pregnant didn't do that. But they scored just as well on all the other memory tests that we gave them. There's one study out there by Claire Vanson and Neil Watson showing that fetal sex plays a role. So if you're pregnant with a boy, you're you're less likely to show some of these memory disturbances than if you're pregnant with a girl. There's other studies by Lara Glynn showing that it depends on how many children you have, which actually makes some sense. You know, I'm sure there's many other things going on in your life. You're tired. Your body is going through all these changes. And especially if you have more than one child, it might accumulate a little bit more. Dr. Galea has been pregnant a few times, so she knows that carrying a baby affects the whole body. Virtually every part of our physiological system is disrupted while the parasite, I mean fetus, is <laughs> growing within <laughs> our bodies, right? Because your pulmonary system, your lung capacity actually decreases by about 50%. Mm -hmm. Cardiac output increases by about 50%. Our blood volume is four extra liters. We're carrying around four extra liters of fluid in our systems during pregnancy. Like that, you know, think about those liter bottles of pop or something. I mean, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I remember, I remember being pregnant and like pushing myself around and just thinking about how hard everything was. And when pregnant people get stressed, it can be hard on babies too. Remember Dr. Catherine LaBelle from our last episode? She's the Canada Research Chair in Pediatric Neuroimaging. How many uh, brains do you think you've looked at in your career so far? Oh, over a thousand for sure. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about how stress can impact a kid's brain? We study a lot of prenatal stress. And by that, I mean things like symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety that a mother might experience while she's pregnant. And those absolutely can influence a child's brain and they can influence how the child's brain grows. Some of the things that can affect is how thick the cortex is. This is the outer surface of the brain. And we see kids whose moms had higher symptoms of depression have a thinner cortex in preschool. And then we've also looked at brain connectivity. So higher stress in utero alters the way the brain's connected. These alterations are happening in areas of the brain that are later associated with mental health challenges. One of the things we're finding is that social support helps reduce stress in pregnancy. So people who have higher social support in pregnancy, they feel better themselves, but their kids' brains also look better. And this, I think, really showcases how it's a bigger issue. So if we as a society can provide the right supports, we not only help women, but we help their kids as well. As Kira's pregnancy progresses, her brain is gradually steeping in greater and greater concentrations of hormones, like a giant squishy tea bag. One of these hormones is oxytocin, 
It's known as the love hormone because of its presence during orgasm. But it also comes into play during labor and breastfeeding. It's a pretty powerful hormone with lots of different functions. It makes us sleepy, reduces anxiety, and helps with pain. At 40 weeks, the baby starts pressing against tissues in Kira's pelvic floor. This tells her hypothalamus to release a pulse of oxytocin, which signals the uterus to start contractions. As labor progresses, Kira's hypothalamus and pituitary gland team up to produce the body's natural painkillers, endorphins. They're not always powerful enough, which is why some pregnant people choose to receive an epidural. There's also another, less helpful hormone being released, adrenaline, the fight-or-flight hormone. High levels can slow labor down which has an evolutionary benefit. It would have allowed the pregnant person to move somewhere safe if they felt threatened. But it can also make labor longer. Kira is also producing prolactin, which is often called the mothering hormone, and it's associated with producing breast milk. There are a number of hormones we never see outside of pregnancy because, again, they're from the placenta. After the baby is born, Kira's hypothalamus continues to produce oxytocin, activating the pleasure and reward centers in her brain. That's why having a baby on a neurological level can feel like falling in love. Certainly, I feel like I had that oxytocin rush as soon as, not as soon as my son was born, but a few minutes later, all of a sudden I looked at him and thought, oh my God, this is true love. And then I looked at my spouse and was like, who the hell are you? Uh, (laughs) Dr. Galea offered another reason why oxytocin is so useful, especially when it comes to bouncing back from labor. For some studies, oxytocin has been associated with forgetting, which, you know, might be related to childbirth is, you know, painful. So you might need to forget some of that uh, pain. And I I remember my midwife friend telling me, because I said, oh, I'm nervous about the second one. She said, let me tell you, Lisa, you don't remember the pain associated with the first one. And I was like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And then in the middle of my giving birth to my second one, I was like, oh, right, right. It's this bad. I'd forgotten how, how bad it really was. After nine months of being waterboarded with helpful hormones, it's time for a come down. When I give a talk, I often put up pictures of, you know, Beyonce on stage when she's pregnant with her twins, and she looks amazing. Mm-hmm. And then I share the, what I say, the worst picture of me ever in my life, because, <laughs> you know, I look so drained, and I've just given birth to my son, and, you know, it's a little unfair because I'm not, I don't have stylists doing my hair and everything, but I do it to prove a point, which is, hey, it's a tremendous toll on a, a person's body to be pregnant. I mean, I wouldn't give it up for the world, but I think it's really important for us to be aware that it is a big physiological toll and there are going to be repercussions. Some of them are good repercussions. You get a prize at the end. You get a baby. <laughs> like You get a whole human, only fully formed human. You are at reduced risk for a variety of cancers after giving birth out. Those are all good news stories, but we're also at greater risk to develop a number of like postpartum psychosis, mm-hmm. postpartum depression, obsessive compulsive uh, disorder is actually three times more likely. Postpartum anxiety is a, a, can be a really huge issue for people. And we need to be more aware of this as a society so that we can support people during their, and support families during this postpartum period. Perhaps it's not surprising that such a huge life change comes with mental health challenges. 
So prenatal and postpartum mental health challenges are are really common. Pre-pandemic, we're talking about rates between 10 and 20%, depending on what estimates you look at. And during the pandemic, those rates have gone up quite a bit. Perinatal mental health challenges are just a lot more common during the pandemic. So prenatally, we can talk about things like cortisol, which is elevated when you're stressed and can affect how the brain grows. We can talk about epigenetic changes as well that will influence baby, all sorts of things like that. Postpartum, we're talking more on the caregiving side of things. So, you know, how someone interacts with their baby will definitely be affected by that parent's mental health. Dr. LaBelle has been developing strategies to help new parents. And so one of the things that our team has been working on is our team, Leanne Tomfer-Madsen and Leslie Roos, developed this app to support mental health and parenting strategies in parents of, of young kids. It's a peer-supported and clinically coached app. So parents go through sort of a weekly series of videos, activities, those kinds of things. And we're looking at how it changes mother's mental health, how it changes children's behavior, and how it changes those kids' brains. So I'm really excited to see what that means. And we have promising early results in parents. We also want to make a long-term difference for the kids. After returning home from the hospital with her newborn, Kira takes parental leave from her job as one of Canada's leading neuroscientists at a well-known research institute. And quietly, her brain continues to change. Her amygdala is growing. Outside of pregnancy, the amygdala is responsible for helping store and process emotional memories. During postpartum, its growth causes Kira to become really sensitive to her baby's needs. There are more receptors in the enlarged amygdala, so pleasure hormones like oxytocin trigger feelings of reward. It's released even when she does something as simple as holding her baby. It's a positive feedback loop that will make the bond between parent and child even deeper. Kira isn't the only one doing the parenting. When dads are involved in primary care, their brains release levels of oxytocin comparable to mothers. But we don't know enough about how fathers' brains are affected by childcare. And that's another reason why Brain Canada is so important. They support people like Dr. Einstein. Brain Canada is really moving forward in supporting diversity in research, including sex differences. And I think the new frontier, honestly, for brain research is going to be bringing the social together with the biological. Dr. Einstein knows a lot about how our brains function as we age. We'll hear more from her as Kira continues her journey through middle age, menopause, and beyond. Women spend a third of their lives postmenopausal, so our story isn't over yet. On the next episode, Alzheimer's, all the gray matter, a lot of it is dead. So it means it's really atrophied. The tissue is sort of gone, and you get uh, this emptiness, <laughs> essentially. Playing with Marbles is a Vocal Fry Studios production in partnership with Brain Canada. The executive producer is Jay Coburn. Our associate producer is Max Collins. And I'm your host and editor, Katie Jensen. 
Thanks for playing.